All right, this evening we pick back up in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and remember last time as we began our study here in the book of Ecclesiastes together, we mentioned that the book of Ecclesiastes is basically Solomon's uh, recounting, if you would, of his own experimentation of searching for meaning and purpose in this life under the sun, that is, on this earth, and how he, in a sense, through his own experiences and experimentation, through testing this and trying that and exploring this and indulging that without any limitations. And again, remember, King Solomon was the perfect individual for this because there was no lack of resources at his disposal. There was no lack of opportunity. He was a king. He had great authority. He had great power. In fact, we saw, if you want to glance back, chapter 2, verse 10, I think it's one of the fitting summary statements of what he was describing and really of the whole book. Chapter 2, verse 10, I think every human being on earth should know this. Solomon says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure. And Solomon was just making, I believe, a summary statement there indicating, and we saw last time some of what he described. And this book is about this, how he experimented with knowledge and education and increasing his learning. And perhaps that's the meaning of life. Maybe if you just know more. Maybe he can be more educated and be the smartest person. And we already know he had incredible wisdom beyond all of his contemporaries in human history. And he found out yet, no matter how much more he learned, he said it all still was like just emptiness. It was like soap bubbles, vanity of vanities. And that's really what that Hebrew term speaks of, the idea of like a soap bubble, something that looks so beautiful and enticing. And then as soon as you grab it, just gone. There's nothing there, right? And, and Solomon was saying, whether it was the pursuit of education, or it was success in a career, or whether it was higher position or status, or greater power, or experiencing new opportunities, or whether it was any form of pleasure, any form of entertainment, having fun, the party life, indulging you know, relationships with the opposite sex, any form of material possession that he could acquire. I mean, there was no limitation to what Solomon had access to, what he could afford, that he could indulge in. And he, he very candidly says, whatever my eyes saw, if I saw it, I got it for myself. If I wanted it, he said, I acquired it and I indulged in it. I didn't withhold anything from myself. And his constant refrain was what? It was all meaningless. It never was the ultimate meaning and purpose of life and I tried it. And so Solomon was basically saying, look, I experimented and did the experimentation process for all of humanity. <laughs> and, I can, and he says at the end of the book, here's what I found. The best thing in life is to have relationship with God, to fear God, to obey his commandments. That's where real purpose is. And really, this book is just a description of his experimentation and how meaningless and purposeless so many things on this earth under the sun are. Not that any of them, all of them in and of themselves are wrong, but if you take God out of the equation, life's vain. There's no purpose. It's empty. It's just a meaningless existence 
on this planet. The key is, is to have relationship with God, to find fulfillment in those things and knowing God and seeing creation from God's perspective and life on earth from that vantage point and understanding that it's about an eternal perspective that helps us find some degree of meaning while we're navigating life on this earth. Now, as we come into chapter 3 this evening, Solomon carries on with this idea, and here he kind of gives some contrast of the balance of life's various contrasting experiences. And he'll give 14 different contrasts here, being born and dying, a time to speak and a time not to speak. And he, he draws all these different contrasts of different life experiences, different seasons that we go through, and how that this is just a part of the earthly journey. They all have their prescribed purpose. Look with me in verse 1. As he begins, he says, To everything, now let's get out of our system, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. Right? All the... Older folks who know the bird song that they put together, if not, it, YouTube works for that. If you're the younger generation, go look up the birds, turn, 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 and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and you'll see God's Word makes the best music. Uh, might not have been done from a Christian perspective, but uh, was quite an interesting song, you know, as they just took in a rather groovy way and used Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and really put out a very wonderful song, and God's Word doesn't return void, so who cares? You know, the Word of God was going out there, uh, and so it's hard to read the passage if you know the song without it just coming into your brain, uh, so hopefully we've gotten beyond that, but he says, verse 1, to everything there is a season, he says, verse 1, a time that is an appointed time period, the idea is an appointed time for every purpose under heaven. So as he begins this section, He's indicating to us here in verse 1, Solomon is saying, from my experiences, my experimentation, my life journey, he had come to realize that everything, if you would, has its prescribed time as a part of our earthly journey and the human existence on this planet under the sun. And again, whenever he's talking about under the sun, he's talking about on the horizontal. What happens here on this earth it's a cursed earth. It's a fallen existence. Doesn't mean we can't have a relationship with God, but he's talking about the life experience under the sun here on this planet. And he says, I've come to realize that everything in balance, these contrasting things, they all have their prescribed time in which is a part of the earthly journey. And they all even have their own purpose that happen at times and times but in all of those different experiences he describes in verses 2 through 8, they also have set limits to their duration. And that's why he says there, to everything there is a season, that is, a set period of time. Life comes in seasons, right? Just creation itself, naturally, that we have four seasons, and we live in a part of the country here in the East Coast where we, we in a sense, get to actually experience that reality in a very clear way. We have, you know, winter and spring and summer and fall and winter and spring and summer and fall and the changes and the variations, and, and God allows life to unfold just in creation with different seasons, and each season has its pros and its cons, and, and there are purposes and values even in the you know, creation and system of nature that different seasons bring to pass, and yet each of those seasons is exactly that. It's a season. 
it doesn't last forever. And the value of seasons, I find even just naturally, is just about when you're getting sick and tired of that particular season, a transition comes, right? And, and, and then you kind of find yourself, and I just can't wait to the next season. And then that season comes, and you're all excited about that season. Oh, I'm so sick and tired of being hot. I just can't wait till the hot weather's over, and all the people who come to the Jersey Shore leave. And, and, right, and, then, and then the next season comes around again, and you enjoy that season, and you kind of embrace it, and it's exciting. And if you're a part of the Montemiro household, you change all the decorations for that season, and those who've married my daughters know how that works now, too. You know? and, and, and so th- you enjoy a season, you dwell in a season, but seasons don't last forever. That's exactly where they are. They're, they're temporary set time periods that have unique dynamics and distinctions to them, but they have set limits and durations. And he says, to everything that happens in the list below, he says, there's a season attached. There's a certain season for these things to happen. There's a certain season for these experiences on earth to happen. And he says there's also a time, and that term there, time, literally means an appointed time, indicating there are, by God's prescribed way of how life happens in the journey on this earth, there are prescribed appointed hours when certain things in this list below are going to happen. It's a part of earth's journey. And he says there are going to be appointed times when you're laughing, and that's God's appointed time for you to be laughing and celebrating and happy and rejoicing. And God is also going to say there are truthfully appointed times by just life's journey and experience where you're going to be grieving, and you're going to be mourning, and you're going to be very sad and very, and, and all of those things in measure and balance in different seasons of life we journey through, and in God's variation of what we experience They have an appointed purpose, and all that is done happens ultimately, really, to a degree, you might fairly say, in a ordered, balanced, controlled way by God's sovereign design as a part of earthly existence, and it often happens, truthfully, without any control of humanity. We often aren't able to control the seasons of our life. We just navigate them. We don't really have the control many times to change the different seasons. It's kind of just according to God's arrangement and God's providence and allowance of what unfolds, but he superintends over it all, and it's helpful to know that and to be able to just know that life happens seasonally, that there are set time periods for every different purpose, things we have to learn, character to be developed so that we understand more about life and humanity because we've gone through this now and and maybe it was the first time we ever went through that, or and we can relate to someone else. And there are purposes in all these different earthly experiences that we go through. And God, by his providence, governs even this fallen and rebellious world. Is the world cursed? Yes. But it doesn't mean that God's walked off the job site, and he's just letting everything go. You know, there's that song that was out there on you know, Christian radio, you know, the world's not falling apart, it's falling into place. You know, kind of the idea was the lyrics. And so you're recognizing, is the world to a degree falling apart at the seams? Yes. And to a degree, it is unwinding, the Bible says that, but God, because he's sovereign as a God with providence and superintendence, even what humanity is making unravel by sin and the curse, 
God is able to somehow superintend over in his providence and still coordinate. Ephesians 1 says all things to work out according to the counsel of his will. And so he's integrated and involved in all that's happening. And so therefore, it's important to realize that so that we don't get like a fatalistic mindset. And that's the danger. Because if we just develop a fatalistic view of life, then it becomes, well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen, and there's nothing you can do, and it's just you know a fatalistic attitude. And the downside and the, the danger of that is that always leads to things like human selfishness, and excuse-making, and basically saying, look, well, it doesn't matter what I do anyway, so therefore, I'm not responsible, I'm not accountable, and I'm just going to do whatever I want, because fatalistically, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And, and the Bible doesn't teach that. And so we want to be careful that we understand God's involvement, and that life does happen seasonally, that there are purposes in different things, but we realize that we are, however, still to be responsible and that there are appropriate time periods for different things. And it's good to just be able to recognize that because then as these different experiences happen, they allow us not so much to, if I could use the term, overcompensate and overreact when the season or the purpose or the experience or the event is happening, but to realize life happens in balance. Life has seasons, and there are purposes for all the different things that happen on this planet because God promises to work things ultimately even for our good, as we'll talk about here in a few verses, especially for those of us who are walking with him. And it makes a vast difference in our outlook. So he says, to everything, there's a season, and there's a set purpose, a time period for every different purpose that happens under heaven on this earth. And then he begins to go through this contrasting list. Verse 2, he says, there is a time to be born, and a time to die. Contrast. Time to start life, a time to end life. A time, he says, to plant, and a time, the exact opposite, to pluck, it's literally to pluck up, to uproot what has been planted, or at one time was put there. So a time to be born and a time to die. There is a time for human life to begin. We have no control over that event, right? Right? Uh, that event happens. It happens outside of our control. God grants conception, the Bible says, but God also determines how and when birth is going to come to pass, when life is going to begin. So there's a time to be born. God sovereignly controls that. And he says there's ultimately a time on the contrast of that to die. There's no ultimate control over our life's expiration date. And our physical life as a human being does have an expiration date. The Bible tells us it's appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. So in the same way our life begins at birth, God gives us life and our life is born and starts, God also clearly tells us there is also from the day you're born an appointed day, an appointment on the calendar where life physically will come to an end on this planet. It's a part of human existence. Death entered this world through sin and it's spread to all of humanity, and there's an appointed day when we will all expire. And it's the one appointment, here's the crucial thing, it's the one appointment that you can't change, you can't skip, it's an appointment that you have to keep, but it's also an appointment you don't know the day. So it's the one appointment that you can't get out of keeping the day of our death, and, but it's an appointment that nobody is told the day or the hour. We don't know when that's coming. And truth be told, we really don't know how to live until we're ready to die. 
And that's why it is so important to understand these realities and that when we cease and our earthly life ends, that we're going to stand before God, but to realize that there are purposes and reasons for all of those things. And so again, what we want to be careful with understanding that is that we don't as human beings make the mistake, as unfortunately we are doing in a great degree in our culture, where we start to try and play God with birth and death. And where all of a sudden we start trying to take the role that belongs to God as creator of all humanity, and we try and play God by overriding his authority with birth and with death. And where all of a sudden we think it's okay for us to take responsibility to determine are we going to allow birth to happen or are we going to stop it? Or are we going to bring about death because we want to, instead of realizing, look, those are appointments and things under God's authority and God's control. And he has purposes and reasons for how those things unfold. He says there's also a time to plant and a time to pluck up or uproot what's planted. So there's a time to establish things, we might say. To plant speaks of starting something to cause it to take root. And there's a time for that. There's a time for planting things. There's a time for you know, putting down roots and starting something and planting something or sowing seed and beginning a new thing. It's a planting season, a time to plant. And then he says, there's also a time and a purpose and season in life when the right thing to do is actually to uproot something that has been planted. And sometimes that's the right purpose. Sometimes that's the right season, that it's a time, hey, but this has got such deep roots. God's, it's time to pull it up. Doesn't matter how deep the roots are. It's time now to uproot that, maybe because it's supposed to be transplanted somewhere else. Or maybe it's just something that God's saying, it's not producing good fruit anymore. So that needs to be uprooted now. And that needs to be pulled out, whatever it takes to uproot it and bring an end to it, perhaps to some degree even. Verse three, he goes on to say there that there's a time to kill and a time to heal. Again, complete different contrast. A time to break down. The idea is to break down a wall, it seems. And a time to build up. Now, again, to kill is to destroy or to put something to death. Now, that may seem harsh and difficult to, to, to grapple with, but understand, he's not referring to their murder. That would be a contradiction of what word, the Word of God teaches, you know, to murder, to take the life of someone else who's innocent and to selfishly end their life in an act of murder. The Bible teaches that's clearly sin. That will always be wrong. However, the Word of God does teach there are other ways when at times to kill, to end a human life may be a legitimate thing perhaps in self-defense or in capital punishment or in a realistic war or combat type situation, which is vastly different than murdering someone. And we see in the word of God where God himself says in Genesis chapter nine, before the law even ever came to pass, before the Mosaic law came into existence, before the law, God instituted capital punishment as a way to govern and to guide humanity in their selfish evil intents where remember someone, if they did kill someone in an act of murder, that is they wrongly shed the blood and ended the life of someone's life who belonged to God, creating the image of God, then God said that then by man's blood, his blood should be shed. In other words, God said, if someone sinks to that depth where they would murder and put the end of a human life and the value it has, then God says the best thing in that situation to do, doesn't say the person can't be forgiven, 
But God says the, the right thing in that situation as a deterrent is they need to lose their life. God says that would be the appropriate response. And again, this is something that God's word teaches even prior to Mosaic law. So again, whether it's capital punishment or a worse situation, or God says there is a time when to kill would actually be the just and the right thing. There could be a purpose in that that is appropriate. And he says also there's a time in life to do the opposite. There's a time for healing, to seek to save life, to salvage life to do what's necessary to restore something that's wounded or damaging. And God says, look, in the same way, sometimes it may be right to put an end to something's existence. There are also times when doing everything humanly possible to try and save, salvage, heal, and spare the life of something is the right thing to do. And there's a purpose and a reason for that. And there's a need at times to work on healing, whether it's a person or whether it's just a situation or relationship or whatever it may be. He says there's a time to heal. A time, he says, to break down, that is to disassemble, we might say, to knock something down, to remove it. And there's also a time to build up. That is, there's a time to work to restore what's been damaged, to develop something, to build it up. Maybe something exists and God says, look, yeah, it exists, but it needs to be built further. It needs to be taken further, and there's a purpose at times to do that. Verse 4, he goes on to say, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. So here the clear contrast is the two extremes, right? To weep and to mourn describes the times when our earthly journey will be marked by grief and sorrow. And God says that will be a part of the human existence. There will be seasons, where there will be times when you will be weeping, convulsing, deeply grieved, mourning in horrible sorrow, the death of a loved one, some major painful experience, some hard disappointment, when the right thing to do in that season, God says, is to weep, is to grieve, is to mourn, is to let sorrow have its purpose as you journey through the painful experience of whatever it may be that caused that. Life at times is marked by a season of grief and sorrow. And he says other times life is marked at times by a season of happy celebration, a time to laugh and to dance. The idea there is to, to, to celebrate, to rejoice and so forth. And right, Is that not true? I mean, there, there are times where we're in a season where maybe there's grief and mourning, a funeral, a loss of a loved one. And then there are other times when we're celebrating in human existence, you know, a marriage or a birth of a baby and, 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 and just two complete opposite extremes. And listen, I can tell you from a, you know, not just a life experience, we know that, you know, from a ministry perspective and pastorally, that, that's, that's a lot of what life is like from a ministry perspective. Uh, in one moment, you're, you know, trying to minister and help somebody process the death of a loved one maybe in the congregation and work through grief and sorrow. And then literally w within the same day, it's happened at times before, where then somebody else is saying, hey, we just got engaged or, you know, we just found out we're pregnant. And you go from, you know, being sad and grieving and feeling deep sorrow with someone else. And then an hour later, you're on the phone with someone and, and they're rejoicing and celebrating and, and just the two opposite extremes of life. And the important thing is to realize there's a time and a season for both. And the most important thing is that we're being sensitive to the proper time to be doing the right things. When somebody's grieving and mourning and they're sad and they're sorrowful, you are completely rude and unsensitive if you're laughing. 
And that is not a time to be making a joke, right? So when somebody's deeply hurting and sorrowing, the Bible says we grieve with those who grieve, we mourn with those who mourn. Now, by the same token, if somebody's having a wonderful, happy, terrific life experience, it's also wrong in the same way to be unsensitive to want to throw cold water on their happiness if they've gotten engaged or gotten married or, you know, or celebrating a new baby or uh, to basically be angry or to basically throw cold water on their rejoicing and happiness if that's just the season that they're in, right? We should rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We should grieve and mourn with those who are grieving and mourning, realizing they will come in their seasons. Both are a part of human existence, and both of those things shape and develop our character, and we learn through all those different experiences that we go through. He says, verse 5, there's a time to cast away stones in a time to gather stones. You know, one commentator I read, you know, said in regards to this passage before that when God sent forth the angel to distribute st stones and rocks all over the planet, that he tripped and dumped the wheelbarrow in the area of Israel. Uh, and if you've ever been to Israel, it is a very rocky territory. Uh, and and it's, so, it's such a fitting analogy, the description of that. So they, it was a very rocky land. So in order to farm and do agriculture, a big part of what they had to do was to exactly what's described there, go out and do the work at times of gathering stones and removing stones to make the land more fertile. And so here he says there's a time to remove stones, to cast them away from the field to make it more fertile and useful. And then he says there's other times when the right thing to do is to, to gather and collect stones and use them for a productive purpose. Many of the stones they gather, they would use to build walls. You know, one man said before, if your enemy came in Israel and put a bunch of stones in your field, don't be angry, just take the stones and build a wall. And again, just recognizing, hey, this same thing that could be a miserable thing, I can take it and use it for a productive thing. And so there's a time period of time to be wise in regards to how we navigate that. He says, verse 5, a time to embrace in life and a time to refrain from embracing. Both are a part of earthly existence. There are times when it is the right season to embrace. And whether that's embracing a person, whether it's embracing a situation, there are right times in life where the right thing to do is to fully connect, to accept without reservation, and to engage fully and to full-on embrace that person or to full-on embrace the situation because it is the right thing and it's the right time. And God would say, embrace it. Just embrace it. It's the right thing. And then there are other times when God says it's the right season to refrain from embracing. And the idea is to do the exact opposite, to opt to hold off and to not engage. Or to perhaps, in a situation, realize, okay, I'm having the opportunity here, something's being presented to me, to embrace, and whether it's a relationship, whether it's a business opportunity, whether it's a some, and here's the opportunity. Do you want to embrace this? And God says the right thing to do would be refrain from embracing that right now. Don't embrace that, God would say. It would not be the right thing, or sometimes it's just not the right season. And so wisdom understands that life carries both of these as a part of the process. There are things to be learned from both, and it's very wise to pay attention and to realize that both of them are proper responses depending upon the situation. 
and depending upon the season of life we're in and the time period we're in, very wise. Certainly, if you're a person who's not yet married, that's great to remember for physical purity as well. It's a time to be embracing. Uh, and when you're married, you should be embracing. And when you're not married, you should be refraining from embracing. And there's just great wisdom, and we can apply that to so many different areas of our life and situations that arise. Verse 6, he says, there's also in life a time to gain, and there's a time to lose. A time to keep, and if you're a hoarder, a time to throw away. Right? So here, God reminds us again, both have their purpose. There's a time to gain and to get ahead in life. There's a time to advance. There's a time to be able to move forward, and there's nothing wrong with that if it's the right season for it. You shouldn't, oh, I feel guilty, I'm getting ahead. I feel guilty, I'm gaining ground, we're going. God says, there's a time for that. <laughs> there could be a right time in a season to gain, to get ahead, to advance, to move forward, and to gain ground. But God says, understand, life comes in balance, and there's also going to be times and set time periods in your life where it's actually going to be a season where God allows you to lose some ground and where maybe you may lose a few battles or you may lose a few dollars. Ugh. Nobody wants to think about that, right? Sometimes God has us gaining money. Sometimes God has us losing money. And in all those things, there's balance and purpose and reason. And for us to overreact to any one or the other is out of balance. God says they, they have their purposes. There's a time to gain, but there's also a time to lose, God says. There's a time to keep and hold on to things. And there's a time to say we've been holding on to this too long. We really don't need it. It's, it's time to let go of this. There's a time to, in a sense, clean house on occasion from time to time. Verse 7, he says there's a time to tear, and often they would do that in response to their grief. There's a time to sow. The idea is to mend, to put things back together. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. And certainly that's probably one of the more fitting ones that we navigate in our earthly journey. God reminds us that there are times in life. And interesting, he says first, Time of silence, then a time to speak. I almost wonder if that's a purposeful order there. God says, here's wisdom. Life comes in seasons. There's prescribed times and set limits, and, and everything has a purpose. And he says, sometimes the best thing to do, there's a purpose to choose not to speak. There's a time to remain silent, to not engage verbally. You know, I just was you know talking to actually two different conversations this week in, in you know, a counseling scenario, and just you know, in two separate situations and reminding in both of those scenarios that are coming to mind right now to, to people, look, just because you have an idea, you don't always have to say it. Just because you have an opinion on that matter, you don't always have to share it. You're allowed to have an opinion. It's okay that you have an idea. It's all right that you want to have a perspective, but sometimes it doesn't always mean it's the right thing that you got to tell that person or you got to share that idea. Sometimes even that, it's just, just better to just keep that to myself. I've learned more over the years, there's great value at times sometimes because if what you have is really something God wants you to say, here's what I found over the years. A lot of times if what you have is really something God wants you to say, God will open a door and ultimately amazing if you wait things out, sometimes people will say, so what do you think? Oh, well, now that you're asking, you just gave me a license. So now, now it's a time to speak <laughs> because now I'm not infringing upon, you know, your situation or bar now's the time to speak. And so there is a time 
to be quiet, and there's also a time, I believe as well, when it is the right thing to speak up, and to be silent would be wrong, right? And we know that. There are times when silence is not the right thing, or maybe we're not sharing honestly, or we're repressing how we feel or think, and we're, oh, I don't want to cause a ruffle in our relationship, and God says, no. There's a time when it's wrong to be silent. You need to speak up and communicate what you're thinking, what you're feeling. Stop being fearful. You need to be honest with the, and, and so there's a time to do both. And the important thing is that we're paying attention when is the right time. He says, verse 8, a time to love and a time to hate. Again, strong words, but certainly the Bible says we should love what God loves and we should hate what God hates. So there's a time to love something and to express love and to show love. And look, God also says, understand part of the earthly journey is there are also times when we should show our hatred and our disdain for certain things. And, and Jesus himself, we see in our study in Revelation, said that, that he hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, right? God says that he hates pride and arrogance and those who cause division. We saw that in Proverbs chapter 6. There are six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination to him. And so there are times when it is the appropriate expression to show love, and there are times it may be the appropriate expression to express our hatred and disdain for something wrong or hurtful or not good. And then he says as well, a time of war and a time of peace. So there are going to be times when on this earth we may be battling something. A war is a series of battles. And so at times we may be journeying through life and it may be kind of a season of war for us where we are battling something in life. Or there are times I think in life when the right thing to do is to go to war for a right cause. And, and, and I'm not, you know, trying to, in, you know, indicate the idea that I know when the right or wrong time to do that is from a national perspective, but I just know from a personal perspective, there are a few times when, when I've recognized this, this is something to go to war over. This is worth going to war over. <laughs> if it matters for someone's soul or for my family, I just, I'm going to war over this one. And, and there are certain things I think it's appropriate to stand for righteousness and to go to war on that are worth battling over. And then he says there's also times when peace is the right thing, times when things are not going to be like a war with ongoing battles. And isn't it so wonderful when we have seasons where life's just kind of peaceful and restful and quiet and, and we don't have to feel guilty? You know, Psalm 23 talks about how he leads us beside still waters, and sometimes the shepherd will lead us to a season where it's, you've, been, you've been doing a lot of warfare recently. It's time for you to have a peaceful season and to just have some rest and a time of kind of some peaceful, restful experience. And there are times as well, as I said, in contrast to seek peace and to seek to be a peacemaker, and Jesus tells us that. And where instead of keep fighting and battling, it's we take the initiative to make peace and to try and bring peace into a situation. Verse 9, he goes on to say, and what profit has the worker in which he labors? I've seen the God-given task which the sons of men are to be occupied. Now, the idea there Sol Solomon seems to be conveying there in verse 9 and 10 is what profit does the worker have in which he labors? Because I've seen the God-given task which we're going to be occupied. You almost sense Solomon is conveying there. What gain is there, even if we work really hard to try and do what we can to maybe avoid some of the experiences we don't like in verses 2 to 8, right? Because you have all these contrasts. <laughs> and in those contrasts, well, I like that, but I don't like this season. So I'm going to embrace that season but I'm going to do everything I can to resist that season. And it's almost as if Solomon says, look, 
what are we going to gain if we try and avoid certain experiences because God's told us to everything? There's going to be a season. You're going to go through each season, God says. And you can work hard to resist that season and, and avoid that season and skip this season, but God says part of human existence under the sun is you're in season and going to go through all these different life experiences. It's a part of the earthly journey that we are going to be as the God-given task as human beings on this planet in a fallen creation, we are going to be occupied from time to time with each and every one of these different experiences, whether difficult, enjoyable, it's a part of the balanced experience here on this earth as we journey. Verse 11, he says, and God, he has made everything beautiful. This is the culmination of these verses. He's made everything beautiful in its time. And isn't it so wonderful to know that, that God makes everything that we go through, all of our earthly experiences, he says, beautiful in their time. And the idea there is everything beautiful, everything appropriate, or the term could be translated, everything fitting. And it seems to be the idea there the Holy Spirit's conveying is in due time, God has a way of making everything we experience on earth fit together. He kind of makes all the pieces eventually come together. And this is the hard part for us because we have just a few pieces of the puzzle from our earthly perspective and our earthly experience, right? And the hard part is God sees the whole puzzle put together from eternity. So the struggle we go through is we're in this season or that season or going through this experience and we're going, I don't see any purpose in this, God. Why would you let this go on? And God's saying, I, trust me, in the same way you've been looking forever for that peace over, and how does this, where did this, they must have made a mistake at the factory. That they had to. This puzzle piece does not, you just put a puzzle together before. This just doesn't go together. There's no way. And then eventually, right, in time, you finally find out after a little bit more time passes, oh, this does fit. That's where it fits. Oh, and oh, and now that, and then you see the fuller picture. And, and I wonder in some ways if earthly existence to get into eternity, that's going to be part of the process where finally we see the whole picture. And we may not see the beauty of certain things that happen on this earth. I think even now there are a lot of ugly things that happen to us on this earth, right? There are a lot of painful experiences and hardships and confusing things that happen. And as we go through things on earth, sometimes it does, let's be very candid, it seems like a bunch of random disconnected events on this planet especially if you don't know God. And if you don't know God and you don't acknowledge God and you don't recognize God's existence and God's involvement, that is what life is like. It's like a bunch of random, disconnected, confusing, this is just an ugly, messy, horrible maze that we're stuck in, and none of this all makes sense. The difference for the child of God is you can say, it may look like that, but I know somehow God makes everything beautiful in his time. And eventually... The ugliest things that happen in life, if you've lived life long enough and you've walked with God for a season, you get to see that once in a while and you go, man, God, you took something really ugly, really bad, really miserable, and in time, look at the beautiful thing you made out of this. Look at the beautiful thing you did for me in my life out of this. And it's so wonderful to be able to see how God works that we, we call it that Romans 8.28 principle, how God works all things together for the good 
to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What happens to us may not be good, even our own mistakes and failure, but God says, I can take anything like a master chemist, and eventually I can take everything and bring some good thing out of that. How wonderful that God can do that, and that we can rejoice in that reality that he makes everything beautiful. Key is in its time. We got to wait at the timetable, and it's wonderful when you've seen it, because then you can trust the Lord. Eventually, somehow, God will bring something beautiful out of this too. And also, it says, verse 11, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that he does from beginning to end. Notice here, again, he says, God has put eternity into human hearts. The idea there is a sense of an eternal reality. Now, a lot of people struggle their whole life. We did as well, maybe before we knew the Lord, kind of like refusing that reality. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, no to God. But it doesn't change the fact that part of being created in the image and likeness of God, which there are many things that encompasses, one of it is, what is God? He's an eternal God. So he creates us as human beings, and he deposits within our life this awareness that we are more than just temporal creatures. And he breathed into our nostrils from Adam all the way forward the breath of Lily, the breath of life, and not just physical life, but the reality that we have an eternal spirit. And that there is a part of us in the deepest part of who we are that we are an eternal being. And so eternity, in a sense, has been hardwired into us to kind of gnaw at us and make us realize, wait a minute. Life's got to be more than just this physical planet and everything that happens under the sun. And God deposits this eternal awareness into our heart that we are an eternal creature that are going to end up somewhere forever in an eternal destination. And when you put that into the equation, then life events and experiences, really, they become possibilities and really great impossibilities for God. Because with God's involvement, two things happen because God's put eternity into our hearts. The first thing is, is that all the life events that happen to us in balance and seasons, they bring us ultimately, God's goal is into an eternal relationship with God. And that's what his heart intention is. Acts chapter 17, it tells us this, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, but listen to what he says, nor does he worship with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath and all things. God gives breath and life to every human being as creator God. He gives to them all things in their earthly existence. And then listen to what the Bible goes on to say. And he's made from one blood, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. That means God determined, pre-appointed the time period, the generation that you and I would be born in. You could have been born in the 1700s. That wasn't the pre-appointed generation for you. God said, you need to be born in this generation in human history because it's a part of me putting eternity in your heart and I want you to come to know me as your God. And it says that he determined as well our dwellings. That is where we would live geographically. You and I could have been born in Haiti. We could have been born in Africa or Iran or Iraq or Russia. We were born in the United States. 
Because God said, you being born in this generation at this time period historically and being born in this nation, and let me go further, being born into that family with those experiences and all, God said, all of that gave you the best possible chance to do what? Come to know God. And God determined all that. Knowing what we needed and giving us the best chance because he goes on to say, so that, Acts 17, that they would seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for God and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. God put eternity in our hearts, and then he purposely designed everything in our experiences on this planet because God said, for you, because I love you and I know you, I knew that would give you the best possible chance to reach out and discover that you need God and that you're an eternal creature, and that God wants you to be forever with him. How amazing <laughs> that God forethought all of that and does that and coordinates, I mean, the dots that God has to connect to prepare us to come to know him. But even more than that, he then uses all the earthly experiences to just prepare us for eternity. See, God's put eternity in our hearts to a degree as well. That's why there's always that gnawing thing within us that we just were so dissatisfied on this earth because we weren't created to be on the earth forever. And God knows there's another existence. And that's why as a Christian, in a sense, you become ruined for this world. But that's purposeful. God puts even the eternal life of heaven in our hearts to kind of do that within us. And he says there in verse 11 that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. The idea is God, it's so complex. Even what God just does in, in our individual life from beginning to end, he says it's so complicated. You can try, and, but you'll never, ever, ever grasp how many dots, and that's the way I always say, like, how many dots <laughs> did God have to connect to do this and that and this and that and this and that, and all the dots God connected just for your one life? You know, and I think only eternity will reveal that, but we're never going to fully grasp the vastness of all the great things that God did. Verse 12, he says, I know that nothing is better, therefore, for them to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and to, that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor, it is the gift of God. Now, Solomon goes back to this idea back from chapter two at the end. He said, I said five different times this comes back. He always kind of returns back to this theme that the wisest thing that we really can do because we have such little control over what happens to some degree on this planet, the wisest thing that we really can do is really just enjoy and celebrate as the gift of God all the simple pleasures that God does offer to us on this planet. It's often not all the things we chase after as human beings, right? The success and the career and the power and the prestige and the positions and the recognition and the toys and accumulating more stuff. I mean, in the United States of America, don't ever forget, folks, we are the most lucrative nation as far as, you know, our accessibility to things and, and our ability to afford things and all the stuff that we have. And this is the most medically prescripted, you know, country in the world. And we have more than everyone else on the planet. And we use and abuse prescriptive medicines to medicate and to cope with our lives more than anywhere else on the planet. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. And that we would come to this recognition, and Solomon says here, you know, the best thing to do is just to rejoice 
celebrate, enjoy life, do good. And every man, he says, verse 13, should eat and drink, have a good meal, eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, just enjoy. There's food on my table. And he says, and enjoy the God-given labor, whatever God gives you to do so you don't got to sit around and be bored all day. God giving you a job, that's fine. I got something to do. And to just, he says, it's the gift of God. God's gift to just have these simple pleasures and, and, and I might say to, to enjoy life to some degree instead of just enduring life. And that's our problem, and really, and I think it's one of the plagues of the United States of America, is we have become so filled with, you know, just overabundance that we don't know how to just enjoy the simple pleasures of everyday human existence. And to realize that's God's gift. It's all the simple stuff. A good meal and a decent family life. I mean, just all the something to do day by day. He says that's the gift of God. Too often we we feel like we're oh we're enduring this and we're enduring life. And and God says just enjoy. Would you just enjoy life one day at a time? You don't know what tomorrow's coming. Just enjoy life. God's that Solomon says that it seems like that's just the best thing to do. And here's coming from a guy who had everything. <laughs> and Solomon said it's just the simple stuff that's really God's best gift to enjoy. He says, verse 14, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. So Solomon understood, look, whatever God wants to bring to pass, it's going to happen. He says right there in verse 14, I know this. It doesn't matter what human beings do, what they don't do. He says, whatever God does, it's going to be established forever. No human being can add to it and no human being can really take away from it. Again, the Bible tells us that God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. And he says what God is going to do, his intention, it's going to come to pass. We might say when God determines to do something, Solomon had learned, when God determines to do something, he's going to bring to pass what he wishes. So the wisest thing for us as human beings is not to strive against our maker, the Bible says, right? To realize God's going to win the wrestling match. And the sooner we can come to terms with that, accepting God's rulership over our life initially, and then as we walk in relationship with God, that's why the Bible says, here's what God requires of thee, O man, do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And just seeking the Lord, I, whatever you intend is what's going to come to pass anyway. You know, I don't know about you, I find myself, the longer I've been a Christian, the more I walk with the Lord, the more I find myself praying prayers like, listen, Lord, uh, can you just pick for me? Just choose and make it so obvious what you've chosen. That would be really great because you're going to choose better than me and, and I don't want to try and add something that you don't want to do and then have to subtract it later on. I don't want to try and stop something you're trying to do. Just, Lord, pick and help me just to walk with you and, and just to follow you in whatever you're doing. And, and Solomon, no doubt, because he was able to indulge so many things, he said, I just learned to God's going to have his way in the end, and he says it's really that men would come to fear him, to realize he is an authority, and to honor his authority is really the wisest thing to do, to strive against it, he says, just leads to such a miserable, meaningless existence when we strive against God. He says, verse 15, and that which has already been, that which is, excuse me, has already been, and what is to be has already been. The idea there is just, he's referring to just that life comes in cycles. And there are these recurring cycles. 
You know, so many times we, as I said last time, I think when we were together, you know, we get so excited as human beings, we, we invent this or that, or, and sometimes we're thinking like we're going through something new, and, or, or we, we kind of think that we have such novel ideas, and the reality is we're just rebranding things and repackaging things, or we also make this mistake, as he says there, that which is right now has already been before, and what is to be has already been I think another area where we make a mistake sometimes too is we journey through something, and as we're journeying through something, we struggle sometimes when we think, this is so unfair. Nobody's ever had to go through what I'm going through. And God says, don't lie to yourself. Lots of people through human history have gone through what you're going through. And I have been their God through those things. And I have helped them through those things. And I wouldn't make you be exposed to something exclusively that no other person in human history, whether it's temptation or troubles or letdowns or sickness or hardship, or we can fill the list there. And God says, it's been before. There are others before you who have walked that journey don't beat yourself up and make the problem worse for yourself. Realize, Lord, I'm not the first that's gone through these things. And you've been faithful with others. You've helped them through it. And Lord, I, it's a part of my journey. It's a part of the different seasons of life. And you're going to be with me through this. And I think there's great help in being able to realize that. And that's why I think he says at the end of verse 15 that God requires of an account of what is past, the idea is that how we handle things, how we process things. God holds us to accountable for one thing. How do we navigate it? What are we going to do with the matters of life when they come into our experience? That's what we're accountable for. How do we respond to what unfolds in our human existence toward God? Verse 16, moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness was there, and in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there and I said in my heart God shall judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time again he says for every purpose and for every work here he seems to be expressing his frustration Solomon he says verse 16 that that in the place where there should have been judgment that is good judgment just judgment righteous decision making he said I found there was wickedness there and and, and I think this Disheartened Solomon in the place where men should be making good judgments and righteous decisions with the authority that they have, he said, I found there was corruption there. And this disheartened Solomon. But again, I think this is just an, kind of an, a reminder to us what has been, remember what we just read, is what happens now and what's happening now is stuff that's always been. That's always been an age-old problem in humanity. Mankind has never been able to govern himself ever. That's a constant recurring problem in human history. We don't know how to govern ourselves. And because of that, there is that disillusionment. Well, I thought they were going to give me justice. I thought, I can't believe. I thought, and God says, humanity's corrupt. That's why we need the kingdom of God. <laughs> because where there's supposed to be human justice and righteousness, often there's human pollution and we corrupt it in the way that we do things as humanity. He said, verse 18, and I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see, not that God needs to know, that they may see that they themselves are like animals. So God says, 
Sometimes I allow people to go through things just to see how carnal they are and to see that they're acting much more like animals than human beings created in the image and likeness of God. Sometimes God exposes our own fleshly nature sometimes to see how really almost you know, reduced we can behave in our behavior, almost behaving like mere animals in our carnality. For what happens to the sons of men, now he gets a little sarcastic here, what happens to the sons of men also happens to the animals. One thing befalls them as one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath, which is true, men and animal alike. Man has no advantage over the animals for all is vanity, meaningless. All go to one place, all are from the dust, that is how they were physically created, their physical bodies, and all return to the dust as far as their physical bodies. Now, Solomon's basically just expressing there in his frustration and his sense of feeling like there's a meaningless existence to human life under the sun. He says, you know, what, what really advantage do we have? Often we behave like animals, and he says, truth be told, we, you know, just like the animals, they die, we die. They have an expiration date, we have an expiration date. Now, certainly, we understand there's a difference we're creating the image and likeness of God, but Solomon's just expressing the reality that we don't have any advantage over even the animal kingdom. We have a set period of time that we live out our human existence, and that is it. We're to do the best with what we have. Now, verse 21, he says, who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth. Now, if you are a pet lover, I'm not even going to touch on that. Verse 22, legitimately. So I perceived, will culminate with this, that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice. He comes back to this in what? His own works, for that is his heritage, for who can bring him to see what will happen after him? In other words, once life on earth is over. He's, you don't know what's going to happen after your existence. So what's God bringing us back to? God's saying, just live now and live well now and run your race to the end of the journey. And you know, sometimes it's good to just have that perspective, the expiration thing as human beings once in a while, you know, just there's something about that to once in a while consider your age. And I'm not trying to be morbid and then to say, okay, what do I have left? Maybe you have 75% of your expiration date left if you make it all the way to the end. Maybe you only got 50% of life left to live. Maybe we only got 25% of life to live. Maybe we have 10, 5% of life to live. The reality is, is we don't know the answer to that. We think of biologically when we're gonna live till, but the bottom line is how does God allow us to live life? One day at a time. We don't know if tomorrow's coming. So we live life one day at a time, we walk with God, and we trust things. That's why Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has sufficient trouble of its own. 